0: Hey guys, welcome back to Daily Kaylee's 13 Days of Halloween. Today is day number three, and today's episode is about the X-Men of New Orleans. So, as I've said before, if you haven't noticed, all of these episodes are inspired by American Horror Story. Obviously, if you've seen American Horror Story Season 3, the x of New Orleans is a pretty big situation, Today, we are going to break out the Halloween candy, light some candles, sit in the dark, and listen to this story. Thank me later. So, before we begin, I think it is important to say that the Axeman of New Orleans was never caught or identified. Ever. None of his murders were motivated whatsoever, it seemed. They were not motivated by robbery. He... They could not find anyone that had a connection to all of these people. Super strange. The Axe of New Orleans was an American serial killer, obviously. He was active from May of 1918 to October of 1919. Some people think that he was actually responsible for similar murders that took place as early as 1911, but obviously we have no idea. So, all of his victims, obviously were murdered with an axe. And this axe actually often belonged to the victims. It was usually not his own axe. In most of the cases, a panel on the back door of the home was removed by a chisel. And the panel and the chisel were both left at the crime scene on the floor near the door. He then attacked either one resident or the entire house with an axe or a straight razor. And then left. He literally never took anything from their homes. He never messed with the bodies afterwards. These were just completely unmotivated murders. He was like, fuck it, I'm going to kill someone with an axe today. And then he did it. The majority of the victims were Italian immigrants or Italian Americans. So many believe that these crimes were ethnically motivated. Many media outlets were, like, obsessed with these crimes I mean, it was, like, sensationalized all over the country. Also, some media outlets suggested that the mafia was involved, even though there was literally no evidence of that. I think they just wanted to make it more interesting. Some investigators believe that these killings could be related to sex and that maybe he was specifically seeking out female victims. Criminologist Colin and Damon Wilson hypothesized that the man killed only male victims because they were obstructing his attempts to murder a woman. Which actually was supported by a few cases in which the woman of the household was murdered, but the man wasn't. There's also a less plausible theory that the serial killer committed the murders in an attempt to promote jazz music. And you'll see why that's a theory in a little bit. He was, like I said, never caught or identified. They they had seriously no suspects whatsoever. And his crime spree stopped just as randomly as it started. Like, there was no rhyme or reason to the timeline of these murders. To this day, they still have no idea who this is. And it's still one of the most largely contemplated cases in America. Now, this is why some assume that... It could be about jazz music. On March thirteenth, nineteen nineteen, a letter that was supposed to be from the Axeman was published in newspapers saying that he would kill again fifteen minutes past midnight on March nineteenth. But he would spare the occupants of any place where a jazz band was playing that night. So literally that night, all of New Orleans' dance halls were literally filled to capacity. There were literally Parties at hundreds of houses around town where they would hire professional or amateur bands to play jazz music. There were no murders on March 19th. This is his letter. It is labeled at the top. Hottest Tale, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans, the Axeman. They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. If you can hear my cats in the background, I'm so sorry. I don't know what the hell they're doing. Miles, please. Mama is working. Let's rewind. They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the axe man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, be smeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to, if I wished I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition for you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared, in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well... As I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Arteris, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou will publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy, the Axeman. So, there were a couple of suspects of the Axeman, and none of them really held any weight. Crime writer Colin Wilson speculated that the Axeman could have been Joseph Monfrey, who was a man that was shot to death in Los Angeles in December of 1920 by the widow of Mike Pepiton, the Axeman's last known victim. Wilson's theory has been pretty much widely repeated in other true crime books and websites, but, however, true crime writer Michael Newton Searched New Orleans and Los Angeles, public police and court records, as well as newspaper archives, and failed to find any evidence of a man with the name Joseph Momfrey having been assaulted or killed in Los Angeles. We don't think this man even existed. We think that this whole story was made up to support the theory of the axe man's identity being found at last. Newton was also not able to find any information that Mrs. Pepitone was arrested whatsoever for any crime or had even been in California. Newton also says that apparently Momfrey was not an unusual surname in New Orleans at the time of the crime, so this name could have literally just been made up off of that. There may have actually been an individual named Joseph Momfrey in New Orleans who had a criminal history, and he may have been connected to organized crime. The records at this time are extremely fuzzy And it's so hard to tell who was who and what they were doing in the fucking 1920s. So pretty much, they think that Wilson's explanation is just an urban legend to, once again, give some peace to the citizens of New Orleans. Apparently, two of the early victims of the Axeman were an Italian couple named Chiombra. And... They were shot by an intruder in their lower Ninth Ward home in the early morning hours of May 16th, 1912. The male survived and his wife died. Now, in newspaper accounts, the prime suspect is referred to by the name of Mumfrey more than once. However, this entire case is radically different than the Axeman's usual murders. So, Joseph Mumfrey could have been the Axeman, but it's highly unlikely. Shannon just got off work early and brought me lunch. I'm taking a corn dog break everyone take five. So, let's talk about the actual victims. The first two victims of the Man were Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine. They ran a grocery store out of their home on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Street. On May 23rd, 1918, they were asleep in bed together when The axeman broke into their home and cut their throats with a straight razor. After he cut their throats, he actually bashed their heads in with an axe. And the police believe that he did this maybe to conceal their actual cause of death. Joseph survived for a little bit, but he died minutes after being discovered by his brothers, Jake and Andrew. Catherine died before the brothers ever arrived. In their apartment, the police found... The bloody clothes of the murderer, which meant he obviously changed into clean clothes before leaving the house as to not seem suspicious by anyone he would see. They did not do a complete search of the house after the bodies were removed, but the bloody razor was found on the neighbor's lawn. The police ruled out robbery already because none of the valuables that were left in plain sight had been touched at all. The razor that was used to kill the couple actually belonged to Joseph's brother, Andrew, who was one of the brothers who found their bodies. Andrew ran a barber shop on Camp Street. His employee, Esteban, told police that Andrew had actually removed the razor from his shop two days before the murder, and apparently he wanted to have a nick removed from the blade, I don't know. Andrew lived in the adjoining apartment to his brother's, and... He found them about two hours after they had been attacked. He said that he heard strange groaning noises through the wall. And he said that he was drunk and he thinks maybe that's why he didn't hear the attacks. The police were super surprised though because the murderer broke into their home. If he heard the groaning noises through the wall, he should have heard that. He was at first the prime suspect in the case, but... They let it go because they literally could find no evidence that he did this. Now, Joseph's wife, Catherine, her throat was cut so deeply that her head was almost severed from her shoulders. The second attack and the third victim of the man was Louis Besumer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe. They were attacked early in the morning on June twenty seventh, 1918 at the back of his grocery store. He was struck with a hatchet above his right temple, which resulted in a skull fracture. His mistress was hacked over her left ear and was found unconscious when the police arrived at the scene. The couple was discovered right after 7 a.m. by John Zanka, a driver of a bakery wagon who had pretty much came to the grocery store just to make a routine delivery. John found both of them in a puddle of their own blood, and they were both bleeding from their heads. The axe, which actually belonged to Lewis, was found in the bathroom of the apartment. Lewis later explained to police that he had been sleeping when he was bashed with the hatchet. Almost immediately, police arrested a suspect by the name of Lewis Abukan, who was a 41-year-old African-American who was actually employed by Lewis. No evidence existed which could have proved this man guilty, but they arrested him anyway, stating that he had conflicting accounts of his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. Shortly after the attempted murder, Harriet stated that she remembered having been attacked by a mixed man, yet her statement was discounted by police because she was apparently, you know, delusional from the attack. Robbery was also said to be the only possible explanation for the attacks, yet no money or valuables were removed from their home whatsoever. Lewis was later released as police were unable to gather sufficient evidence to hold him accountable for the crimes. Media attention soon turned to Lewis Besumer himself as a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish were discovered in a trunk at his home. Police suspected that he was literally a German spy. And government officials actually began investigating him. Weeks later, after going in and out of consciousness from the attack, Harriet actually told police that she thought he was a German spy, which led to his immediate arrest. Two days later, he was released. And two of the lead investigators were demoted because there there was no evidence of this at all. However... Lewis was once again arrested in August 1918 after Harriet once again told police that he had attacked her more than a month previous with his hatchet. She actually said this while she was dying in the charity hospital after a failed surgery. He was charged with murder and served nine months in prison before he was finally acquitted on May 1st, 1919 after a 10-minute jury deliberation. The fifth victim was Anna Schneider. She was attacked in the evening of August 5th, 1918. She was 8 months pregnant at this time and was only 28 years old. She woke up and found a dark figure standing over her and was bashing her in the face repeatedly. Her scalp had been cut open and her face was completely covered in blood. Schneider was discovered after midnight by her husband, Ed, and he was returning late from work, so he had an alibi. Anna claimed that she remembered nothing of the attack and eventually she did give birth to a healthy baby girl two days after the murder. Her husband told police that nothing was stolen from the home besides six or seven dollars that had been in his wallet. The windows and the doors of the apartment seemed to not have been forced open and authorities came to the conclusion that the woman was most likely attacked by the lamp that was on their bedside table. James Gleason, who was an ex-convict in New Orleans, was arrested shortly after Anna was found. Gleason was later released due to a complete lack of evidence and stated that he originally ran from the authorities because he was arrested all the time. He was like, oh shit, what did I do now? After this is when investigators began to actually speculate that these attacks were all related. The next victim was Joseph Romano, and he was an elderly man who lived with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. On August 10th, 1918, Pauline and Mary awoke to the sound of a huge noise in the adjoining bedroom, which is where their uncle was sleeping. Upon entering the room, the sisters discovered that their uncle had a serious injury to his head with two open cuts. The murderer was fleeing the scene as they arrived, so they saw a quick glimpse of him All they could tell was that he was dark-skinned and heavy-set and he wore a dark suit with a slouched hat Joseph was seriously injured but he was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived and he ended up dying 2 days later due to severe head trauma The home seemed to have been like completely torn upside down but no items were stolen the authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel on the black door had been chiseled away. The murder of Joseph Romano created a state of extreme chaos in the city. At this point, all of the residents of New Orleans were terrified of being attacked by the axe man. Police received so many reports of citizens claiming to have seen an axe man lurking in New Orleans neighborhoods. And a few even called to report that they had found axes in their backyards. None of this was proven to be true. It was just a bunch of chaos and fear. John D'Antonio, who was a retired Italian detective, made public statements in which he hypothesized that the man who had committed the Axman murders was the same man who killed several individuals in 1911. He said there were... A bunch of similarities in the murders but at the end of the day there was no evidence this was just speculation he also said he thinks that the potential killer has two personalities and he actually described him as a real-life dr jekyll and mr hyde the next victim was charles cordomiglia who was an italian immigrant and lived with his wife rosie and their baby girl mary on the night of march 10th 1919 Screams were heard coming from their house. The grocer from across the street ran to their house to investigate, and upon his arrival, he noticed that Charles, his wife, and their daughter had all been attacked by an intruder. Rosie stood in the doorway with a serious head wound, and she was actually clutching the body of Mary, who was deceased. Charles was laying on the floor, bleeding profusely the couple was rushed to the charity hospital and it was discovered that both of them had skull fractures once again nothing was stolen from their home and a back panel on the door was chiseled away with a bloody axe being found on the back porch of their home charles was was released to go home two days later but his wife rosie was still remaining under care after she gained full consciousness Rosie said that the grocer from across the street, Orlando Giordano, and his 18-year-old son, Frank, were responsible for the attacks. Orlando was a 69-year-old man, and he was in way too poor of health to have committed these crimes. His son, Frank, was more than 6 feet tall and weighed over 200 pounds, but he would have been too large to fit through the panel on the back door. Charles completely denied his wife's claims. Yet, the police arrested the two anyway and charged them with murder. The men were actually later found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang and his father was sentenced to life in prison. Because of this, Charles actually went on to divorce his wife after this trial. Almost a whole year later, Rosie announced that she had falsely accused the two out of jealousy and spite and they were released because, I mean, her statement was the only evidence they had in general. The next victim was Steve Boca, and he was also a grocer. He was attacked in his bedroom as he was sleeping by, once again, an axe-wielding intruder on August tenth, 1919. Steve awoke during the night and saw a dark figure looming over his bed. He remembered nothing that happened. He lost consciousness from the blows, and once he woke up, he ran to the street to investigate the intrusion. And that's when he found that his head had been cracked open. Steve ran to his neighbor's home where he once again lost consciousness and collapsed. Nothing had been taken from the home, once again, and a back panel on the door had been removed by a chisel. Steve recovered from all of his injuries, but he still could not remember anything that happened. The next victim was sarah lawman and she was attacked on the night of september 3rd 1919 the neighbors came to check on her because she lived alone and they were worried she was a young woman in new orleans by herself and she did not answer the door and they eventually broke into her home to check on her sarah was 19 and they discovered her laying unconscious on her bed suffering from a severe head injury and she was missing several teeth it appeared that the intruder had entered the apartment through the open window and attacked her with a blunt object. A bloody axe was once again discovered on the front lawn of the building, and Sarah did recover from her injuries, but she also could not recall any details from the attack. The last victim was the one that we talked about in the beginning. His name was Mike Pepitone, and he was attacked on the night of October twenty-seventh, 1919. His wife was awakened by a noise, and arrived at the bedroom just in time to see a large axe-wielding man fleeing the scene. Mike was struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. The majority of the room was splattered in his blood, including a painting of the Virgin Mary, which is actually a very popular detail of this case, just because it's so fucking creepy. His wife was unable to describe Anything about the killer, even though she literally saw him run away. The murder of her husband was the last of the Axeman attacks. This is all the police of New Orleans have. They have no real suspects, they have no idea who did this, and the Axeman was never caught. He appeared and then he disappeared out of nowhere. Let me know what you guys think about this case and I'll see you in a few days. Bye guys.